welcome to this presentation of Bethel Family Church. We hope you enjoy listening and that it helps you to grow closer to Jesus. I'll start this morning. My name is Jim and uh, I come from a place called Mount Barker, which is about 30, 35 kilometres east of Adelaide and I fellowship in Stirling. I haven't been to your fair city for over 20 years and uh, last time I was here I was with a team of analysts who were installing your internet infrastructure. So I think it still works. (laughs) I tested it today. (laughs) So it was good. I I was an analyst with uh, Telstra for about 25 years and uh, I gave that up to do this. Isn't that exciting? But uh, here I am uh, in your fair city and this morning before I start I thought, I'll get my iPad right, I thought it would be good if we talked a little bit about the word sin because it's a word that we bander around a lot in Christian circles. You hear a lot about it. It can range from anything to a minor offence or a serious offence to God. Um, And I would say, yeah, I suppose we could view sin as something like that. Uh, Perhaps a a most common term would be to miss the mark. Have you heard that before? To miss the mark, an old archer's term. Um, And that would be correct as well. Neither approaches to the terminology of sin would be incorrect. The word in the Greek, me, um, is amartia, a very interesting word. Um, the a bit is in the negative and martia is where we get the word martyr from. And a martyr is a person who gives testimony or witness, Yeah. So the word of sin literally means to be without testimony, to be without witness. And when we have that understanding of sin, we can understand how we can lead to missing the mark, getting something wrong or out of order, being an offence. Yeah, you with me? So the language comes natural to me and so I need to be careful not to treat you like a bunch of dummies because you're not... (laughs) All right, you're very intelligent people. And um, I think having that idea that to be without testimony has, for me, very serious implications because when we hear the words, he who was without sin became sin, I think now it is a, a lot more serious than just Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He abandoned his testimony so that I may legi- have legitimate testimony in me. It is a very serious thing. Now that's a big teaching, takes about six months to teach but to give you an idea that to be without testimony is specifically the character and the nature of the word. Other words in our languages, in our language has crept in from the Greek, atheista, a without theist, God, without God. Agnostis, agnosi, without knowledge, without understanding. Amnesia, Uh, to be without memory, anemia, to be without blood, Uh, apathetic, to be without emotion. 
and probably my favourite, achristos, which is translated in the English as useless, is to be without Christ. It's very interesting how, you know, the nature of Scripture now changes when we begin to see, you know, what the words actually meant. And in my language, I don't know, any Greeks here? You know, you get a kabuffa. You ever had a, you know what a kabuffa is? You ever watch NCIS, a denozo slap? Boop, yeah? A kabuffa, yeah? You get a kabuffa, you know? Translated in English, oh, you useless idiot. But to us, oh, you without Christ. It's a very big insult, yeah? So when we see in the scriptures somebody called useless, he is one cursed to be without Christ. It is my intention today, with this information about sin, to be without testimony is so important that, that you understand that my, my uh, desire today is to actually lift you up, to give you a sense of faith and an understanding of scripture that perhaps you may not have seen before. Faith does not define you. <laughs> faith explains you. It explains who you are, how you function, why you are the way you are. And faith is not the absence of doubt. It is having the courage to continue in faith when in doubt. So don't be afraid to think today. As an analyst, that's what I do. As a teacher, that's what I do. Do you think about what you believe? Do you understand who you believe? And do you believe who you understand? You see, Jesus didn't so much stand for what he believed in, but he believed in what he stood for. He had courage to stand in his convictions in such a way that he became them himself. So I hope to offer something today that will give you a bit of a focus on the legitimacy or the testimony of Scripture because that testimony is written in your hearts. You've got to remember the early church for at least the first 60-odd years didn't have the New Testament. How did they survive? How did they worship? How did they flourish? They had something very unique and very special. So I'm going to read a story... It's only a little short story, and I'm going to use this story, pardon me, I'm going to use this story as an introduction to the core message. Ready? You're allowed to smile in church, it's good for you, okay? You're allowed to chill out. God knows I need to chill out, us Greeks can be so intense sometimes. <laughs> but anyway. His burning desire for human affection thwarted. He became increasingly solitary. He worked as a language teacher and as a lay preacher in England in 1877. He worked for a bookseller in Dokarek, Netherlands, and compelled by a longing to serve humanity, he envisaged entering the ministry and took up theology. However, he abandoned this project in 1878 for a short term, training as an evangelist in Brussels. A conflict with authority ensued when he disputed the orthodox doctrinal approach. Finally, to get, pardon me, failing to get an appointment after three months, he left to do some missionary work amongst the impoverished population in the Bordinage coal mining region in southwestern Belgium. 
There, in the winter of 1879-1880, he experienced his first great spiritual crisis of his life. Living among the poor, he gave away all his worldly goods in an impassioned moment. He was thereupon dismissed by the church authorities for a too literal interpretation of Christ's teachings. Penniless and feeling that his faith was destroyed, he sank into despair and withdrew from everyone. They think I'm a madman, he told an acquaintance. Because I wanted to be a true Christian, they turned me out like a dog, saying that I was was causing a scandal. It was then that Vincent van Gogh began to draw seriously, thereby discovering in 1880 his true vocation as an artist. Van Gogh decided that his mission from there on would be to bring consolation to humanity through art. I want to give the wretched a brotherly message, he explained to his brother Theo. When I sign Vincent, it is as one of them. Not many know that Vincent was an evangelical minister. He's kind of one of my historical heroes. He wrote something like 890 letters to his brother Theo, and most of them survive. I've read them, and they are beautiful letters. But in the absence of Van Gogh's letters, if you had just a historical account of Vincent Van Gogh, you would have something like this. He's a madman, prone to fits of rage, paints like a child, and frequents the house frequents the houses of prostitutes. He hasn't got much of a future. Nobody likes him. His choice of art, he's just like a baby. He has nothing of value to offer society. When he, measured, when he joined uh, up with Gauguin in an attempt to start selling some of his paintings so that he could help the poor and impoverished, Gauguin turned him down and that's when he had his first psychotic episode. Cut off his ear and then he wound up in a mental institution he booked himself in where he painted his most famous painting, Starry Night. You're familiar with that painting? The swirls of blue and yellow and the stars and then the village below. See, to him, blue was the divinity of God and yellow was Christ. And if you look at that painting, what you'll find is the village is lit up and right in the middle of the painting, there's a picture of the the cathedral and it's dark. And he's saying the church is no longer illuminated to the world. When you look at his picture of the resurrection of Lazarus, you don't see Jesus in the picture at all, but you see the background awash in brilliant yellow. To him, yellow was Christ. The treasure in the field, you see the yellow field and little red flowers in the middle of the field. The divinity in the middle, Christ, is the treasure in the field. All his art had the, 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 the conveyance of faith. All his art had the conveyance of the mystery. It was a beautiful thing to do. But, but in the absence of the letters, the historians would, would say, he's just a madman paints like a baby, he's psychotic in nature. He'd visit the house of a prostitute because a little girl would work there, 16 or so years old, and she was hired as a cleaning girl. 
and he would go there and give her money that, so that she herself would not turn to prostitution. One day he was invited to a friend's place for dinner and when he got there he, was just there, he just arrived in his undershorts and he said, Vincent, where are your clothes? I gave them to the poor along the way, he said. This was his nature. We don't hear much about that nature. I don't know if you knew that. When I found out some years ago, I was totally surprised and I went in and found out as much as I could. So a historian just writing about what Vincent would be would be minuscule. But in his letters to his brother Theo, he would write about where he was, what he was feeling, what he was seeing, what he was sensing, what pained him, what angered him. He he would write what sort of sorrows he had, what influenced the style of painting that he would have. He would talk to Teo about all of the the, the emotions that he had when when there was the coal mining strike. If you see see, um, the coal mining and the potato strike, when you see the picture of of the potato eaters. You can see a family around him. I don't know if you've seen the painting. And if you look it up, you can see all of the potatoes are cut up into little cubes. There's a yellow light in the background and he set the scene for this poor family coming around the table of communion. So he was writing to his brother how he was thinking and how he was feeling. And here's two things about Vincent's letters. Firstly, they were not meant for publication. They were a private and personal account of who he was and how he was going through life and what was happening to him in life to his brother. They were never meant for publication. And secondly, they were an eyewitness account of his life. And his brother, Theo, was a reciprocal eyewitness account. And so when now you take just the simplistic historical account and match it up with the letters, you will actually find that the letters are in conflict with the basic historical account of who Vincent was. How does that sound so far? Mm, Very interesting. We too have letters. And just like Vincent's letters, the letters that were written in the scriptures were never meant for publication. They were letters of an apostle's grieving heart to a church, to a group of people. They are an account, a record. Just like Vincent's letters, they weren't written to prove his existence, to give credibility to his work, to give fame or fortune to his processes. They were just simply an account. They were a record of the experiences that these apostles went through and they were sharing this record with their people. None of the letters at the time were written. None of them, I think, actually even believe that if you turn to page 673 of your Bibles or 1,361 of your Bibles, you would read the book of Revelations. They didn't know that. 
In fact, it's amazing that when you consider the circumstances in which these letters were written, it's amazing that they survived at all, that we have them at all, the kind of torture that the people went through at the time, the kind of destruction that the people went through at the time, the prejudice, the callousness of people against the gospel. These letters are credible because they are not letters of publication which are made made to convince you and to convince me of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus. These letters are a record privately written between an apostle or the apostles and the church of believers at the time to boister their faith, to build their faith. And this is what I want to say to you. This is the testimony, the legitimate testimony that Jesus has given us. That the letters of the Gospels can be trusted. They weren't made for scientific research and they weren't made for someone to give a simplistic historical account. Although, after being to Jerusalem, I'm finding that there is a lot of evidence to support the the historical account of the Scriptures. However... They stand credible in and by themselves. These scriptures are a personal eyewitness testimony. And just like Vincent van Gogh, they give testimony to what happened when Jesus walked the earth. We sing the songs, we say the words, but are we asking ourselves... Is this testimony legitimately and soundly firmed in me or am I just simply a Christian because my mother was, my father was or maybe it's because I'm just simply here because that's what I do on Sunday. Now I don't know you so I don't know what that is. You are accountable to that testimony by yourselves. In 1 John 1 verses 1 to 5 it says... We proclaim to you the one which existed from the beginning, who we have heard and we have seen. How many of you here have actually seen the Prime Minister? Met him? So none of you can actually prove he exists. But here's the thing. There's the legitimate testimony. Everyone else here will have to take it on faith. Every one of you. You have to. You have no choice. And the credibility of that testimony, the legitimacy of that testimony is based on the legitimacy of the eyewitness. You understand? This is the tension that we face each and every day because our story is crazy. To the world, our story is nutso. A dead man rose from the dead and he's coming back. Essentially, that's it. It's a crazy story. And it doesn't work from the top down. I'm going to come and kick butt. It says the lowest of the lowest will be the greatest. It's reverse. To go up, you have to go down. To be exalted, you need to be humiliated. It's the testimony We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. 
He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. This is the message we have heard from Jesus and now I declare it to you. These letters are an eyewitness account of an event that happened some 2,000 or so years ago, not a historical account for some sort of scrutiny by cynics, critics and opinionated people who think that have all of the answers. Sometimes Christians find it difficult to believe in that sea of criticism and cynicism that surround us. That's why I often see Christians are the only people that jump into a pool then pray to get wet. Sometimes we just simply have to dive in and say, praise God, I'm wet and I'm covered and smothered by the blood of Jesus, not because it has been historically proven, but because the letters that were never meant to be published, that were private and personal, like Vincent's letters to his brother Theo, one person to a congregation and the congregation reciprocating back, this is how I can declare that this word is true and I do not need any historical account. Unless some, somebody actually sat down and concocted this ridiculous story which I cannot believe is possible, I have to accept that what I read in the Gospels and the subsequent letters, I have to accept that they are true. I cannot, by any reason, dismiss the validity of Vincent's experience as fantasy, I mean, accept, rather, Vincent's experiences as, as genuine and dismiss the scriptures that were written in the same spirit. I cannot dismiss the scriptures because they were written in exactly the same spirit as the letters to, from Vincent to his brother Theo were, so were these letters to the early church. And we see lots of testimony around us. In 1 John 4, 12 to 15, no one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us. This is how God is revealed. You are not actually qualified by your theology or your technology. You are qualified by the way you love one another. That's your qualification. That's how God is made visible in our midst by the way we love. And if you read 1 Corinthians 13, you will find 16 attributes of love. And what's the first one? Love is patient. The very first law of love, love is patient. A very interesting word, makrothemia. It means distant memory. And it affects directly your sin, your testimony. If you look at your lifespan from the day you were born to the present day and you look at all of the offences and the things that you do wrong, God does not judge you by the individual offences. He judges you in the context of the whole. 
He sees you as an entire being. And once in a while, you're going to slip up. Once in a while, you're going to mess up. Once in a while, you're going to get it wrong. But if your testimony is true, your compass will come back to the grace and the mercy of God without fail every time. And he will love you back to life. It's his way of doing that. If your testimony is assured and sure, and you can see it here, he says, furthermore, he says, we have seen him with our own eyes and now testify. I have seen Jesus, not physically, I've seen him in a dream. I've, seen, I've sensed him in my heart. And I bet you every one of you have got a testimony to that effect. Don't bottle it up. Don't, don't bottle it up. God is not a genie in a Bible. Okay? He's just here to give you all your wishes. He's here to transform you. Why? So that you may be transformative by nature. It is our sole purpose to be transformative by nature. The apostles spoke with great confidence. Ask yourselves, do I? Do I speak with the confidence? Do I, when I'm in situations where, where somebody is saying, oh, this Bible rubbish, who's going to believe all that nonsense? When you know in your hearts that you have had an experience that is completely undeniable, I have stopped wasting my time trying to prove God. It is a useless effort in my opinion. Remember when Peter and John were in Gate Beautiful and there was a cripple sitting there at the gate? He says, look at us, he says to the crippled man. And he holds out his right hand. Yeah? In Greek, vixio. This is aristero. What does it sound like? Aristocracy. The hand of wealth, the hand of justice. You see, it's important, the language of Scripture. And he says, I don't have silver and I don't have gold, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the guy got up and walked and he didn't praise Peter. He was jumping and leaping and praising God. And then the men were asked to go and give an account of their testimony and Peter says with boldness, men of Israel, if I have been brought here today to give an account for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, then let it be known that it was in the name and through the name of Jesus. Such bold testimony. And when they looked at him and they could see that they were ordinary unschooled men and they had been with Jesus, they had to let them go because they could not deny. And this is the mark of the church, that through the love we have for one another, through the power of a testimony that is born out of the conviction of the truth of the letters, God is made irresistibly undeniable in our midst. Proof is no longer necessary. You are the power pack of Christ, every one of you. Do you realize that? Do you understand that? The younger you are, the more powerful you are, the older you are, the more resilient you are, the greater wisdom you have to impart, the greater understanding you have to give over. Your testimony is not something that is, that is just spoken because this is what I believed all my life, amen. 
This is what the Greeks do. We love it. We love going up there and, and dress like Darth Vader. I am your father. You know, like, I love the orthodox tradition, okay? There's, there's things about orthodoxy that I, that I like. I also like some things, the Catholic tradition. But the freedom that the, the Pentecostal charismatic tradition has, empowered by the Holy Spirit, legitimizing the nature of the letters of Christ, just giving an accurate testimony of what happened in the days when Jesus walked the earth, gives me such a joy. And so I maintain a steady orthodoxy. I make sure that I teach and preach what is proper and right that I have a Catholic tradition in that I'm all-inclusive, but I'm not afraid to dance and jump and say, praise God, he is real, he is alive, and I'm no longer going to pretend to be dead. Sometimes Christians can go around just like Eeyore, oh well, as if anybody cares anyhow. We do it all the time. Lift your head. The troubles that you're going through are temporal. They don't last. They'll go. In my case, as my pastor said to me, Jimmy, they'll either go or they'll take you out. One day God's going to go, take his hand off me and I'm going to grow cold and die. It's the way of it. But I will leave a testimony behind that will let people know that Jesus Christ lives. He lives in each and every one of you and his testimony within us is undeniable. And it is made visible through the love of Jesus, through the love of God, through the empowerment of Holy Spirit. Biblical testimony that is shared in congregations is to lift you in such a way that you can go out into your world without a spiritual gun. You know what a spiritual gun is? The Bible says... <laughs> and you take the Pentecostal stance, <laughs> and you speak in tongues, and you cast out demons. Your authority is absolute. You don't need to exercise it, you just need to use it. The disciples came back to Jesus and they testified this. Jesus, they said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Do you know what Jesus said? Yeah, of course they are. For I've given you power and authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the works of the devil and nothing by any means harm you. He told them after, not before. But then he brought the balance back. But do not rejoice, do not be happy that the demons are subject to you in my name, but rather that your name is written in the book of life. This is your testimony, for Christ is the Lord of life. And over death he's conquered it. This is who you are. Now you may be struggling in your world. Struggle well. It's okay. God is not merciful, unmerciful, shall I say. But I can tell you something. God has healed me of, of various conditions. I'll tell you another story, perhaps another time, who knows. But, but he has not dealt with this heart condition. 
It's a serious one. And I remember one night thinking and praying. I said, God, I'm drowning. And a thought came to my mind. I may not always save you from drowning, but I will teach you how to swim. It doesn't matter what you're going through. Maintain your testimony. Maintain it. You could be going through mental health issues. You could be going through physical health issues. You could be going through spiritual health issues. Maintaining a confident testimony, a martyr, yeah? Maintaining a legitimate testimony, Lord, what I'm going through, I'm going to put in your hands and I'm going to accept what you've done. The first step to all healing across the board is accept. This is where I am. You'll not condemn me for it. You'll not judge me for it. This is where I am. Doesn't mean I'm going to stay here, but right now I'm going to accept that I'm in this place and it's hurting. And I've got people around me who have strong testimony who can lift me up. That's why I'm here. That's why I live. Because the world in general has conspired against you. In Revelations 12:11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word which they bore witness. They overcame him by the blood of Jesus. Yeah, there's the power and their testimony. There's the authority. For I have given you power and authority. Dynami kexosia. Dynamos, dynamos, dynamite. Yeah. And exosia. And it is because of this conviction of testimony that, yeah, I doubt sometimes. I've been a Christian since I was 13. I don't know if you know Bill Vasilakis. I went to school with him. And he looked at me one day and he said, Jimmy, you need Jesus. You know what I said? Okay. I was 13 years old. I just said, okay. Here I am, I'm thinking of going into training as a Greek Orthodox priest, starting as an altar boy. I went home and I said, Dad, I became a Christian, all hell broke loose. That's a lot of fun, I tell you. So here we have Vincent van Gogh's letters, written by a mere mortal, inspired by the divine, giving us an eyewitness of the life. But we also have these letters written by mere mortals that were inspired by the divine that are an eyewitness account of God's desire for humanity. That's what these are. Treasure them. Don't overlook them. Ponder them. Ask the right question. The right question is always important. Asking questions is easy. Lots of people in the world ask questions. They have an answer for everything, a solution for nothing. But we, 
We have the answer of life. His name is Jesus. I hope today that I have helped you reconsider the book, the letters. I hope today that I have helped you take a second look. And I pray that as God opens your eyes to a second look, that you can say, God, what did you mean when you said those words? When Paul penned those words with such agony. Let's pray. Father, we're all different here and we've all worked so hard. We've worked hard to work and in through life. But we know you. We know you through your spirit who testifies about you. And we know you who testify about your father. And I pray today, Father, that as we ponder from this moment on the letters, those letters that were never meant for publication, the letters that were never meant to be made a book, but were merely letters, expressions of eyewitness faith, of eyewitness account. Help us with our testimony that we may have martia and not amatia, that we may have legitimate testimony. I pray, Holy Spirit, over every family represented here and the extended families that they also represent. Bless them. The word blessing comes from the Greek word evlogia. We get the word eulogy from it. The word means to speak well of. So when God blesses you, he is speaking well of you. And when you bless each other, you are speaking well of each other. May they speak well of their family members, those who can be and are difficult at times. May the love of these individuals that pour out into those families, that testimony that is within them, ooze out of them in such a way that it brings the conviction of Holy Spirit upon them to say, although I object to this man, Jesus, I cannot deny the love that he has placed in the hearts of these men and women. Reward their faith, Father. Some here may be hurting, maybe even doubting. Encourage them, Father, and build them up and show them. Speak to them while they sleep. Inspire them in their waking hours. Bless their homes, floor to ceiling, wall to wall, boundary to boundary, and the places where they walk. May it be a declaration of the love of God that comes from them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, I pray. Amen. May God richly bless you all. Thank you. listening to today's message.
other podcasts, head to our website at BethelCRC.org.au or check out Bethel Family Church on Facebook.